History happened everywhere. The verdict. This is our after show podcast where we look back at the most recent episode, number 77, Carte Blanche in Guadeloupe during 2010 to 2015. So if you haven't listened to that, go back, check it out, or else you will find spoilers ahead. Why would you have pork in your ears? My name is Pete Goddard and I'm here in the HHE studio with a teaspoon of sugar to my lovely cup of tea. It's Mr. Ryan Weir. Ah, is that because I'm sweet and I cause a stir? Oh, yeah, that's good. That's nice. I prefer brown sugar, as it happens. That is both a metaphor and a fact. (laughs) And we are joined, as ever, with his densely decorated dance card. It's the judge himself, Mr. Paul Dursley. So am I the third side of the Atlantic trade triangle? You're the ugly underbelly of our otherwise (laughs) splendid industry. (laughs) (laughs) Now, Ryan, I've had a look at my mental index cards and they're all blank for some reason. And I've forgotten everything about the last episode. So would you mind reminding me in about 60 seconds? Yeah, I mean, I can do that. But when do you want me to do it? Now! This week we sailed to the Butterfly Islands of Guadeloupe for a monumental history lesson on carte blanche during 2010 to 2015. We dove into the legacy of slavery and colonisation which inspired local leader Victorin Laurel to envision a memorial to freedom, and we heard of the political struggles which impacted his ability, but not resolve, to get it built. We talked about the history of the museum's location, learning that working at a sugar refinery was a mixed blessing, met the architect whose vision was brought to life in sparkling slabs of black quartz and silver latticework, and we celebrated the eventual opening of the Caribbean Centre of Expression and Memory of Slavery and the Slave Trade, where tourists today can visit powerful exhibitions on the island's painful past. From a blank page to dazzling memorial, this episode was a shining reminder that everyone deserves the carte blanche necessary to live our lives without oppression. And all of this while we considered our future careers as pirate treasure hunters, learned the terrifying origin of a legendary ghost ship, and met Mimi, the island's oldest resident, who at just 112 years old is a testament to the resilience of the people of Guadeloupe. Last week's episode done, summarised nicely, nice one son, now we're over to a young Dursley who's gonna tell you what he thought of me, he'll take you apart without any care, he's the lovely Paul Dursley, the lovely Paul Dursley. Ah, yes. That makes me remember it all again, Ryan. Lovely Mimi, the amazing story of the museum. So I had a lovely time, Ryan. I thought it was a fascinating and brilliant episode. But my opinion is worthless. No one cares about me. We are here to hear the view of the overseer himself. Paul, any first impressions you want to share with us? Well, first of all, you're right. And secondly, no. (laughs) Right. Well... That's good. I think that's a good thing. That means he's got nothing bad to say immediately. Exactly. He had a full, complete experience. No further comment. No notes. A plus. Uh, the truth is, I never shouted at the radio once. Ooh. Yes! Yes! <laughs> this is good, Peter. 
That's a, I don't know if you can a, tell, but I'm eager and excited now. <laughs> that is a strong open. Well, I think Ryan did a good job of trying to lure you in, Paul, because he was talking about a museum, and you strike me as a man who enjoys a good museum. Yes, I prefer a museum to an art gallery. And I did look at the museum, the way you described it, with this sort of silver netting and the black quartz. Black quartz, yeah. Sparkling in the sunlight. It sounded amazing, and indeed it was. It was uh, an amazing building. It's very modern, isn't it? It's remarkable because the building itself is so impressive and you haven't that's before you've even gone in to experience any of the exhibits themselves or the learning that you associate with the museum. The, the structure itself is just so incredible, even though they do take your mobile phone away, I've heard. <laughs> Modern day slavery. So I did try and see if we had anything of that ilk in the UK by way of slavery museums. So I looked up a couple of slavery museums. We do have the International Slavery Museum in Liverpool, I discovered. Okay. Which will tell the untold stories of enslaved people, where you can learn well, about historical and... They're not untold and... stories, then. <laughs> <laughs> Hear the until recently untold stories of enslaved people uh, and learn about historical and contemporary slavery, it says. Uh, in London, if you don't want to go all the way to Liverpool, you can. we have the Museum of London Docklands Museum, which has a London sugar and slavery permanent exhibition in it. Okay, wow. And that's quite interesting because the museum building was built at the time of the slave trade to store the sugar from the West Indian plantations. No way. So that was where it ended up. Exactly. It came near to us in the end, basically. Uh, And for our American listeners, I had a little look to see if there was anything equivalent in the US. And not surprisingly, we have the Legacy Museum, which is a museum that covers the topic of the legacy of slavery, which is in Montgomery, Alabama. If you're in that area, check it out. Yeah, I can imagine there might be a few museums to slavery in America. I once went to a plantation in Georgia where they had some buildings that were labelled workers' quarters. (laughs) So they haven't necessarily embraced the legacy as much as you might think. Because I think by workers, they meant the slaves. Yeah. Yeah, it's 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 a difficult thing to do well because for people like me, if it becomes all preachy and reparationsy, then it puts me off. It's got to talk about the history. Yeah, and I think that what I like about this one in Guadeloupe is that it's much more of a communal experience where people can go and do their research, they can hear lectures, talk about it. It feels more than just a regular museum. This is a place that people can come from all over the world to study as well as enjoy the exhibits. It seemed like a very active place. It was an archive, a place you could go to trace your ancestry as well, from what you were saying. Oh yeah, absolutely. For it to have a document archive where people can sort of bring their own materials as well so that people don't forget the past. Yes, I, I I agree people don't forget the past and the hideous things that and the hideous things that were done in the past. But you know, the past is a different country in my opinion and we have to look at it as history. Well, we have to learn from it, I think. <laughs> well, I hope we have learnt from it. Well, it's difficult to say that when you've got 30 million people living in conditions that are equivalent to slavery today. Well, I suppose the question is define we. Well, I'm not but uh, I believe other people are Mm. in some cases. But I'm glad that you brought this up though, Peter, because uh, I did a bit more research about the museum and I'm going to tell you about that after this.
Ryan, you promised us some goodies about museums. What have you got? Uh, yeah, so the memorial, when it opened in 2015, it did well. It had 110,000 visitors in its first year, and it's continued to increase those numbers every year since. So currently it's sitting at around about 150,000 people visiting every year, wow. which is incredible, really, when you consider the size of the Ooh, island. It's a small place. That must be basically everyone who goes there passes by and checks it out. Yeah, so, well, it's a quarter of the population. In 2017, it won the Council Council of Europe Museum Prize. Now, I'd not heard of this, but it's quite the established award. So this is an award that's been going since 1977. It's given out every year to museums which are judged to have made a significant contribution to the understanding of European cultural heritage. And the winning museum gets a little bronze statuette, uh, which they get to keep for the year. And in 2017, the award was given to the Memorial in Guadeloupe for being an outstanding, stunning and innovative museum. The panel that judged it, they praised the founding principles of the museum. They said that it now has a role in making the act of remembrance a means of producing a new society. So I think it's quite remarkable that, that they won that award. Um, this year, however, 2023, the winner of the Europe Museum Award was the Workers' Museum in Copenhagen in Denmark. So I had a little look to see what that one is and what that does. And that one collects, researches and communicates the development of living and working conditions for Danish workers during the past 150 years. And it's a bit of an interesting interactive museum. Basically, if you go along, you can experience everyday life in Denmark from the past few years. So for example, it has an authentic Copenhagen apartment from 1885. You can go to the basement restaurant, which serves authentic food from 1892, uh, an authentic Copenhagen backyard from the 1930s, and a coffee shop, which serves authentic cups of chicory coffee from 1950. Mm, lovely. Are they 1950s prices? <laughs> no, but one of the things that I did like is that uh, in that year's competition, the Workers' Museum in Denmark went up against competition from their neighbours, Sweden, and their museum is called the Museum of Failure. <laughs> and it exhibits over 200 famous products and services which have flopped over the years, right? Things like, do you remember New Coke and Google Glass? Things like oh, those. Yes, yes, yes. So it just puts those on display as things that never quite took off. And yeah, typically on brand, they failed to win. It's <laughs> quite good. Is that a, so, considered a success? I'm confused. <laughs> so do you want to know some of the products in the Museum of Failure? Go on. I bet the Edsel car is in it. The Edsel car is in there. Absolutely. Well, I, it's just an ugly looking car. That, and, and amazing that anybody thought would be popular. Yeah. So this was a car created by Ford. And uh, yeah, they called it the Edsel. And it was super unpopular for exactly for your reasons, for its, for its looks more than anything. But here's some of the other products in the Museum of Failure. So there is the Heinz Easy Squirt. That was green or purple ketchup. Mm, that never took off. Funny, that. Can't think why. <laughs> There's lasagna made by Colgate, the toothpaste company. <laughs> like a frozen ready meal <laughs> lasagna that they made. <laughs> Tried to market. Is this the Museum of Failure or the Museum of Bewildering Ideas as to how they ever got made in the first place? <laughs> and were deemed to be a failure before they even started. <laughs> a little bit of column A, a little bit of column B. <laughs> um, there's the Marlborough cigarette flavoured ice cream. <laughs> <laughs> I can't think why this hasn't taken off. <laughs> um, they have spray-on condoms. Now, you'd think that would be a good idea. Yes, it was the, apparently it was the three minutes of waiting time where you had to wait for the liquid latex to set. <laughs> <laughs> um, there's the Nike Magneto. 
which was a pair of sunglasses made by Nike without any ear supports. So it's just like the lenses, basically, and the nose bridge. Except these ones required magnets, and those magnets you had to glue to your face before you could put them on. (laughs) There was flavoured water for pets. That didn't go down. (laughs) Uh, And then the last couple here are my particular favourites. There's the Euro Club. Now, the Euro Club is a golf club with a reservoir in the handle where if you need to go to the toilet while you're out on the 17th hole, you can just pee into the golf club and it will store it. But it's surrounded by bushes. <laughs> you, sorry, what? You collect your wee in the handle of your in golf club? In the handle club. of your golf club, yeah. And then you can empty it out when you get back to base. I mean, I've had a walking stick which has a little reservoir for whiskey or rum. But yeah. this seems like entirely the wrong way around. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> and then uh, my favourite one is the Rejuvenique face mask. This is a plastic face mask that you put on, you strap it onto your face. And uh, when worn, it was said to be not only creepy to look at, <laughs> but was said to feel like a thousand ants biting your face. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Is Oh, by the way, is Pete's stand-up career there? <laughs> Oh, that was brutal. Look at his face. Oh, he's so so pleased pleased with that. Oh, gosh. What a... Well, I'll tell you what, if it is, it'll only be there because at the museum there is a wall of failure. <laughs> Where if you go, you could they, they have sticky notes that you can write down your own failures and add it to the wall. Oh, so it's just a wall of failure. That is a field trip for us, Ryan. Let's go and <laughs> broadcast our failures to the world. That is brilliant. But what's it got to do with Guadalupe? Good question. Pete, what have you got to talk about? <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you in a minute. Well, as you know, Guadalupe is famed for its gorgeous beaches and its lovely climate. And you go and you sit on the beach and you look at the sea and you have a lovely time. Yeah. One of the beaches you might visit is Razin Claire. It gets four stars on TripAdvisor with comments including lovely find and great beach and food. Very simple, straight to the point, fine. But there is a twist, Ryan. Over the years, some bathers have discovered on the beach human bones. What? Also teeth, coffin nails, and one time even a metal collar, like a shackled slave's collar. Oh, no. So actually, if you go sunbathing now, you might even see a sign that says, do not collect or take away the bones. <laughs> oh, my God. This is a four-star beach. This is a four-star. It's a great beach, It's the beach, one apparently. star off because of the human corpses. <laughs> yeah. Didn't like the corpses. <laughs> Otherwise, lovely time. But actually, uh, people were finding these bones and these finds, and the Guadalupe's Department of Cultural Affairs launched some excavations in 2013 and 2014 to find out why people kept finding bones on the beach. They concluded that the beach had been used as a place to bury slaves. They found a male human jaw with incisors that had been sharpened into points, which suggested an African origin, and they believe up to a thousand slaves could have been buried in the 18th and 19th centuries. Well, that's horrifying. Horrifying, yes. But it's still a beach. It is still a beach. So surely it should be made a sort of monument or something. 
Yeah, so what happened was that it mostly became apparent when they had a big storm in, I think, 2013, which washed a lot of the sand away and brought a lot of stuff to the surface. So the locals pressured, so they marked the areas which they think were the cemeteries, and the locals pressured the government to install an anti-storm surge system, and they brought in more sand and went, Yep, let's have a beach again. <laughs> they replaced the beach essentially, but they have now wow. marked the areas that they said were cemeteries. Hence the "do not take the bones away" signs. But genuinely, I was looking at the reviews, and no one's saying I went there because it was a cemetery. It's just a beach, as far as most tourists are concerned. But underneath it, sinister, scary sight. But that, doesn't this sort of go against the slavery museum? Surely it should be part of that, and it should be revered. Yeah, so they have marked off the areas, and when they take the finds that they get from there, they get stored in a special place. Ironically, the museum itself didn't have the facilities for picking up these kinds of archaeological finds. The bones are treated with appropriate reverence and uh, collected and stored appropriately. But yeah, the beach is still just a beach. The fact that it needed a sign (laughs) indicates that there were people that were taking bones away. Yeah. Who are these people? I know it's. I mean, I take your bucket and spade to the beach. Don't expect to come back with a jawbone in it, do you? No. What grisly fact? It's shocker, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, you think they'd have done something about it? Go on then, Pete. End this bit. <laughs> <laughs> it's your turn this week. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so I have somewhat of a mea culpa. Oh, oh, some sort of sting required? (laughs) I I, 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 I like this. (laughs) Okay, so at the beginning of the story about the Memorial Act, I said that the president of the Guadeloupe region, Victorin Laurel, he was inspired to create the monument to slavery. But that's not strictly true. Because the idea had been sort of bounced around for a while before Victorin decided to then make it happen. So, in fact, the original proposal for a monument to slavery traces back to 1998, when anti-colonialist, independence activist and chair of the International Committee of Black Peoples, Luc René, first put the idea forward. Now, it was dismissed at the time but it has since been recognised by Laurel and his team as being the inspiration for their work on the Memorial Act. Now, you may recall that Luc René was mentioned in the episode. He was the guy right at the end uh, during the inauguration ceremony. See, the guy didn't show up. Yes, he refused to attend because of uh, the presence of French President Francois Hollande. So he's the guy who had the first idea for it. So you can see why you might not want to turn up for the inauguration (laughs) of it. So anyway, so I did a little digging on this guy and I found out a little bit more about him. So born in Guadeloupe in 1952, Luc Renier grew up in a poor neighbourhood and he experienced pretty much firsthand the effects of colonialism and racism. In 1967, he was witness to a strike by construction workers who were demanding a 2.5% wage increase and better working conditions. When the French military waded in and ended the demonstration by killing 87 people and arresting another 200. Renier saw this as somewhat of an instrumental moment in his life. In his own words, he said of the French military that I have always considered the presence of the gendarmes as something anachronistic. 
In my opinion, they are occupation forces. They were strong and unbearable. The tension was palpable. For them, we came from the colonations, even if Guadeloupe was a French department since 1946. They thought we were not able to express ourselves in correct French. They spoke to us like children. So anyway, this all led to him becoming involved in a growing underground movement for independence. In the 1980s, Renier became a founding member of a militant independence movement known as the Armed Revolutionary Cells, the ARC. And the ARC were responsible for carrying out a number of attacks against French targets. But it was in 1985 that things escalated, when uh, Luc Renier and his companions kidnapped a French businessman, Philippe Monroe, and they held him for a ransom worth today around 1 million euros. French special forces, though, they kicked in and they rescued Monroe after just 10 days. Following the rescue, Luc was arrested and sentenced to 15 years for his role in the kidnapping. But less than a year into his imprisonment, he manages to escape. He scales a wall, jumps into a river, and he's able to swim away. He's on the run for weeks, he makes it to the neighbouring island of St. Vincent, and there he is finally recaptured after a local resident snitches. Now, fortunately for Luc Renier, the prison escape was actually a major embarrassment for the French government, mainly because it sort of shone a light on the independence movement in Guadeloupe. And in the end, Luc Renier only served four years in prison because the government decided that making him a martyr really only sort of served to strengthen the independence cause. So in 1989, French President Francois Mitterrand, he declared an amnesty and Renier was released. So he only did four years in the end. Wow. So throughout the 90s, Renier continued to be a vocal, active member of the Guadeloupe independence movement. He joined the uh, Front de Liberation Nationale de Guadeloupe. Uh, he met with Nelson Mandela in 1995, and he started the International Committee of Black Peoples, the CIPN, which still exists today. It continues to fight for recognition by the West, that trafficking and slavery of black people be considered a crime against humanity. And it was in 2022, on the 30th anniversary of the CIPN, that Luc Renier joined forces with the International Movement for Reparations and 23 individuals, and they brought a legal case to France demanding recognition of the transgenerational harm of the slave trade, seeking reparation for the descendants of slaves. So they took their case to the Fort de France Court of Appeal, uh, but it was rejected on the basis of two factors. Firstly, it was rejected because it was established that civilised nations had already recognised slavery uh, as a crime against humanity, pointing to the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, uh, a document which was signed in 1948, and therefore, they said, 80 years had since passed and any legal limitation period had now run out. So you'd had to, you've had your time to be able to do this. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and secondly, it was ruled that, in quotes, none of the persons produced documents establishing that they individually suffered from their own damage directly and certainly linked to the crimes suffered by their ancestors, victims of trafficking and slavery. So if you can't prove it, didn't happen. Well, it's a very difficult situation, isn't it? Because you know, there are ongoing reverberations of mistreatment of, of generation x that then ripple through the future generations but it's very difficult to say because this specific thing happened you know i personally have suffered you know you have people in the uk who are descendants of slaves and slave owners so what do they do pay themselves reparations it's a very complicated question it truly yeah, is and and uh, you know the, that's that sort of gets to the point about what I was saying about, you know, museums and stuff has, has got to be done well. I, I, I agree with you both. Um, 
Uh, Renier sees it slightly differently. His lawyer has since declared that the descendants of slaves know that one day soon history will prove them right. They will now take a new appeal to the European Court of Human Rights. Time will not affect the determination of these men and women for the recognition of the responsibility of the state in the abuses experienced by their ancestors. And so we wait to see what happens. In the meantime, Renier, the true originator of the idea for a commemoration museum on Guadeloupe, he spends less time taking up arms and instead uses a pen to write poetry, which he says is his new way of expressing his anger and frustration. Well, yes, I think I would rather be subjected to poetry than kidnapped. It all, it all, depend, it all depends on the poetry. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, and so we've come to the end of the line. It's time to step into the dock and prepare to face the people's judge. Judge Dursley, are you ready to give your verdict? Yes, I am. Then will the defendant please rise? Your Honour, as usual, may we start proceedings by first asking for your verdict on the factual content. Well, Ryan has contradicted himself a number of times. Oh, by, no. I knew this was going to happen. By, <laughs> by commenting, uh, by putting a mere culpa in. But I suppose, given that that was outside the time period, perhaps it could be allowed. I think it should. So I, I think factual content, it's not an area which I knew that much about. So it's, it's difficult for me to, it's difficult for me to comment on. But you yourself have given your own mea culpa, which nobody would have noticed. Mm. Except yeah, Luke Renier. <laughs> <laughs> He's writing in. He's emailing right now. <laughs> Sending me poetry. Oh, oh God. <laughs> Sending an angry poem. So for factual content, I think I'd be happy, Brian, to give you... B minus. B minus? Honestly? So contain your outrage. Pop it in a box and get ready to whip it out later. I will. Okay, let's ask Paul Dursley about entertainment value. Were you not oh, entertained? <laughs> <laughs> Why do we even have this factor? <laughs> it's just... Well, I was I was entertained about the place. I was entertained by the time period, but didn't get much carte blanche, really. I would have been expecting some uh, sort of a bit more freeform. Yeah. <laughs> it was a tricky one. It's one of those ones that seems to be easy on the face of it, but the more you think about it, the more actually it's hard to fit anything to it. So I had some sympathy with your challenges there, Ryan. So for entertainment value, I... Do you know what? I'm going to be generous. B minus... It's not generous. But you used to find a, anything with the started with a C was excellent for you. Well, it was, but now I'm used to. I'm now used to. Why are your Scott, he's standards the, going up? He's reached the heady heights. Pop your outrage in the box, Ryan. Pop it all out later. All right. <laughs> well, what is acceptable is your grade for Dursley Factor. Who understands where this comes from? Nobody. Only you. What's your grade? Well, I'm a bit annoyed now. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay, Ryan. Prepare yourself for that. I will give you C plus. That might as well be a B minus. Just give me the B minus. I don't understand what the difference is between C plus and B minus. Well, that's the whole point. Fine. Well, those were just categories, Ryan. Don't worry. Who knows what'll happen next? 
But before the judge passes his ruling, Ryan, yeah. this is your chance to enter a plea. Yeah, I'm going to do it. You are going to do it? Yeah. Please yeah. make your plea. You sure? I almost want to, I want to step back <laughs> almost when you do this. Please make your plea now. Okay, Your Honour, it's very difficult to Google a French-based episode <laughs> when everything is written in French. Oh dear, Ryan, let me let me interrupt you there. I'm afraid your appeal has failed totally because all you need to do is press the translate button and it will turn it into English. Yeah, I did carte blanche, I did Guadeloupe, it was in the time period exactly I mean, there was a little bit before, but it was in the time period. <laughs> but it was wrong. Yes, I yes I got a little bit wrong, but I apologise for that today, Your Honour. Be, be generous. You've put, you've put me in a very in a very difficult position. Well, Your Honour, the defendant now stands before you. Have you reached your verdict? I think I might need a few seconds to compose yourself. Yes. This in my golf club. <laughs> 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 On that note, Mr. Weir, I will give B minus. Oh, well, of course you will. This is ridiculous. <laughs> That's an B minus. <laughs> what could I have done to get it higher than a B minus? This is, I'm never getting higher than a B minus. It's, just, it's about the third you... highest grade you've ever got. Come on, Pete, let's just end this. <laughs> <laughs> so, Ryan, your final feelings, as if they're not obvious already. He had carte blanche to give me an A, and he chose not to. Oh, that's good. Appeal to the audience. We'll see if we can get some people to write in later. <laughs> it's worked so far. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, that is our show for this week. If you would like to get in touch about any of the things we've talked about, the scandal of Ryan's grade or anything else, or just to say hello, you can reach out to us on social media through our website, hhepodcast.com, or email us at peteandryan at hhepodcast.com. That's right, and we would love to hear from you. And you never know, you might end up featured on a future show like... Asher Gray from the United States, who says, I love this podcast. I don't tend to learn a lot about history because it's often presented in an uninteresting way. But Pete and Ryan make it enjoyable. The format of picking at random is a great idea to keep things varied. The after show podcasts are also great. Paul is a nice addition to the group, though he does grade Ryan too low. Oh, very wise, Asher. Spot on feedback. <laughs> Unerringly accurate, you might say. And if you want to definitely feature on a future episode, you can rate and review the show on Spotify and Apple Podcasts, where your recommendation can really help bring the show to new listeners. We really appreciate that. We sure do. Now, if you are on Mastodon, Facebook, Instagram, or X, you can find us at HHE Podcast. And if you subscribe to those, you're going to get an alert every time we post trivia, tidbits, news, and photos. And we'll be back again soon with our next episode, number 78, Plumbing in the Himalayas in the 1950s. <laughs> it's going to be one for the ages. But in the meantime, a huge thank you to the judge himself. Thank you, Paul. Okay. Okay. So Oops. that's it, I guess. All that's left to say is... You've been listening to... Do you want to hear about a ghost ship? 
Yes! <laughs> well, we talked about Ghost Ship, didn't we? We talked we about did. the Flying Dutchman. Well, it's not the only ghost ship story in Guadeloupe's history. Hurrah! <laughs> so the Duke de Danzig was a 14-gun, 50-man ship that launched from France for the first time in 1808. It sailed the Caribbean doing trade missions, basically. Uh, but eventually it became used by privateers who captured other boats, plundered them, then set the boats and the crew on fire. Well, the last recorded mention of the Duke de Danzig was in the waters around Guadeloupe in December of 1811, after which she disappeared without a trace. (gasps) However, several years later, a French frigate was travelling through the region when it spotted a ship on the horizon. Slowly approaching it, they discovered it was the wreck of the Duke de Danzig, which was just drifting at sea. So they climbed aboard and they found the ship covered in dried blood and the putrefying corpses of the crew nailed to the deck and crucified to the masts. What? There were no signs of a battle and uh, inside the captain's quarters they just found papers that had been stained with blood. Now, obviously, they were too afraid to investigate any further, so the crew returned to the frigate, but not before setting the Duke to Danzig ablaze and watching it sink below the waves. And it is said that the Duke de Danzig can still be seen floating silently through the waters of the Caribbean. It's bloody fate, a mystery to this day. I see. So Duke de Danzig, how about that? Imagine you're on a Caribbean cruise and up pulls alongside you the ghost ship of the Duke de Danzig. Yeah, if you're on a Disney cruise and then suddenly that happens. (laughs) This is what I paid for. That's not goofy. Bonsoir.